right, this morning we are continuing in our Acts series, and we will be in Acts chapter 21 and uh, 22 this morning. I've been saying this the last couple weeks, but we are going to wrap up Acts uh, fairly quickly over the next uh, month or so. The last chapters are tend to be long stories, and they will go quickly. Um, and then we'll move into a series on the church. Each week as I'm uh, preparing the sermon, I, I try to spend time in prayer, uh, just asking the Lord, what would you specifically have for us as a church body in this passage? What do you desire for us to hear? Because if you're, if you're a teacher of the word or have had a chance to teach the word before, you, you'll know that one of the exciting things as a teacher is you sit down and you open the scriptures and you see a passage and you're like, ooh, I can take this a hundred different directions which isn't necessarily helpful on a Sunday morning to try to go a hundred different directions. So you try to narrow it down and listen to the Lord and say, what do you have for us uh, as your family here? And uh, this week, it may seem unrelated, but I think it's very, very connected. So hang with me. But this week, as I was studying this passage and praying about this morning, I kept being drawn over and over again to the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically at the end of chapter 5, where Jesus talks about loving our enemies. This is uh, wrapping up Paul's third missionary journey. We find ourselves in Jerusalem this morning with Paul where he is in the temple uh, fulfilling a vow and about to be arrested. All of that was touched on last week. This is Matthew 5, the uh, first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which is probably the greatest, not probably, it's the greatest teaching in the history of the world, and it's available for every one of us to meditate on and learn every single day. So I would encourage you to chew and meditate and wrestle through Jesus' sermon. This is sort of his manifesto for what the kingdom is supposed to be like. These are, this is him laying it down and saying, this is what it's like in, in the kingdom of God. And he, and he comes to this part, and it's a difficult word. He says, you've heard it. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was one of the traditions that grew up uh, in that time. He says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can we read that verse together? Verse 44? All right. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of my favorite uh, thinkers in the church world is a really funny name. His name is Preston Sprinkle. Isn't that a great name, Preston Sprinkle? Uh, Preston Sprinkle uh, is a PhD. He actually uh, ghost, was the ghost writer for a number of Francis Chan's uh, earlier books, and he's written prolifically himself, uh, really profound New Testament theologian. And uh, he talks about this passage in one of his books. His, he has a book on nonviolence called Fight, where he wrestles through the nonviolent passages of the New Testament. And he's talking about this uh, passage, and, and he's also a historian, so he was going back and reading all the church fathers and what they had to say about this passage. And uh, what he found and what other scholars have found, and this is mind-boggling, because this is definitely not the case in our world, but the number one most quoted verse in the first 300 years of church history by the church fathers that are written down that we can read today, the number one most quoted verse is this. I say to you, 
love your enemies. For 300 years in the church's infancy, this was the most often repeated and drawn upon verse. What would that be for us today? What's the most famous verse? John 3.16. Tim Tebow got it on his eyes, right? John 3.16. Everybody knows that verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Beautiful verse. But for the church fathers, this was the one they returned to over and over again. Now think why. Use your imagination. Why would they return to this verse over and over again from what you know of church history? They had so many enemies. That's right. None of them were living like we're living. Where, you know, someone makes fun of us and we feel like it's persecution. Someone laughs at us on TV and we feel like we're, we're being persecuted as a church. In, in the early church, every city that the church spread to, they were a minority group. And every, church, every city that the church spread to in early church history, um, not only were they a minority group, but who did members of the church tend to be on this socioeconomic uh, scale, on the latter? Who, did, who were the early Christians? Poor, low, very, very low. Now, we do know of some wealthy believers, Priscilla, um, uh, there, there's others mentioned that had uh, wealth. Barnabas had some wealth that he gave to the church. So it wasn't that everyone was poor, but the vast majority of people in the early church would have come from lower uh, socioeconomic standing, and they would have experienced persecution and certainly minority status in every single place that they lived. And likely... And within that 300 years, almost every Christian would have known of a friend or a relative who was physically uh, persecuted, some to the point of death. So you can see in that context how this verse takes on a meaning that I think for you and I may be difficult to grasp. So Jesus, in his manifesto, in his kingdom charter statement, he gets to this and he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, as we're watching Paul go through suffering and persecution for the remainder of Acts, let's read this verse into it. Who is Paul's rabbi? Who is his teacher? Who is he meditating on? Whose footsteps was he following? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amen. And so as Paul is being beaten, as Paul is suffering, as Paul is facing persecution and imprisonment, we can picture him loving his enemies, even as they're actively persecuting them, and taking it a step further, which is not only to love them, but to pray for them. And boy, did Jesus model this himself. Spread out, naked, beaten on the cross, crucified. And what does he say about those who are killing him. Father, forgive them. Is there a more profound act of love that you can give to someone, especially an enemy, than to forgive? In the midst of active persecution. In the midst of active... And then we see Stephen, who Paul watched martyred, right? Paul saw Stephen stoned to death. And what does Stephen pray when he's being stoned to death? The exact same thing. Stephen, as the stones are hitting him and he's dying, prays, Father, forgive them. 
And so I think we can safely read this into Paul's journey and say this is, this is Paul's mindset as he's facing the various trials and sufferings that he's experiencing. Is this our mindset today? Is this our mindset as a church? It should be. This should be our mindset. This is the kingdom charter of our Lord and Savior, our Messiah, our reigning king. When we experience persecution, when we experience people pushing against us, or even internal conflict, we are to pray and love and forgive. Now watch what he says. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now this is, this is quite a statement. So that, so answering the why question, so that what? You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do we become children of God? Well, if we're going to speak theologically here for a minute, we become children of God through adoption in Christ. We are identified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so when God, the Father, views us, who does he see? He sees Jesus living within us. Our bodies are his temple. And when he sees us and he sees his son communing with us, redeemed, transformed through the blood of Christ, forgiven, he then says, you too are my child, my beloved. Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Galatians 4, we have been adopted into sonship in God. And for the ladies in here, I, that's a male-dominant uh, word, but men in here, you are the bride of Christ. So you can deal with that too. We men are the bride of Christ. You women are sons of God. Interesting. It says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this is the most important thing for any of us in life is to be sons, daughters of the living God. To know him as Father. To walk with him as Abba. This is what we were created for. For he makes, God the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He pours out his love on both evil and good, his provision. And he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Now, we don't have the equivalent in our culture of the uh, first century tax collector who would have been the most hated people in their society. These were traitors. These were Jewish men who were, who were traitors of the Jewish people and started working for Rome to make a quick buck. And uh, they used their authority, their puppet authority under Rome, uh, to, to steal money from their fellow brothers and sisters who were Jewish. This is why Zacchaeus was so hated and Matthew was so hated before they became Christ followers. So if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. What would be the equivalent of that, a tax collector in our, in our society? Politicians. That's the first thing that came to mind for me. If you love those who love you, you are just the exact same as our corrupt politicians who will do anything for your vote. What more are you doing than what the world already does? He says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not Gentiles do the same? Jesus' point is, 
you know, families that that are out in the world who have no relationship with Christ, they love one, they genuinely love one another. They have relationship with one another in that in that family unit. Not that it's perfect, and not that it's perfect in our family units, but they 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 greet one another and say hi because they look the same and they speak the same language and they come from the same culture. And so if you're in my kingdom and you only greet people that look like you and come from the same place you come from and speak the same language you speak, there's nothing transformative. There's nothing special about that kind of love. That's, that's a kind of greeting and relationship that everyone in the world experiences. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who here is ready to say, I'm perfect like my heavenly Father is perfect? This isn't the only place where Jesus calls us to be perfect. In fact, in my own devotions this morning, I was reading in uh, Matthew 19 and 20, where he says the same thing, you must be perfect. How are we supposed to be perfect? John says anyone who says he's without sin is a liar and makes God out to be a liar. If you have sin, how can you be perfect? All right, track with me. This is a morning where you get to look inside my mind a little bit. All right, I'm going to turn to James, who was the brother of Jesus. In James 1, right at the beginning, James has this really crazy statement. And you probably know it by heart. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces, do you, do you remember? What does it produce? Steadfastness or endurance. I like, the, I like the translation endurance. I think that's the right word. And let endurance have its full effect, and then he says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when you suffer, God grows your capacity for enduring in him. When you endure in him, in steadfastness, in Christ, you are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, trace with me back to Hebrews 12. Jesus, now fill in the blank, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Endurance means that you stand still and no matter what comes against you, you don't move. You endure. Perseverance means you keep moving and no matter what comes against you, you don't stop. Have you ever thought about the difference between the two? Jesus did not persevere the cross. He persevered up to the cross. And then he endured the cross. He could have gotten down, but he didn't. He stayed. He did not move. And he would not be pushed from that place. So take this. James says, count it all joy when you face various trials and sufferings. Because when you suffer, it grows your endurance and when your endurance is full, you will be complete, perfect, and lacking nothing. Why? I know I'm asking you to think hard this morning. Why? You've got to own this, which means you've got to work for it. Why are you perfect and complete if you're in a place of endurance with Christ? Because you're standing with him. You're in the same place he is. 
identifying with him. Whoever would follow me, take up his cross and let him follow me. When we endure through the various sufferings and trials that we face, God causes a perfection within us, not in our own good works, but in Christ's good work within us. So that as we identify with Christ in the place of enduring in relationship with him, identifying with him in obedience and submission to him, God looks at us and says, my child is perfect and complete, lacking nothing because my son reigns within them. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? So Jesus, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So one of the ways we endure various trials and sufferings, one of the ways that our endurance grows, probably the primary way, is we love those who persecute us. And we pray for them. And when we love and pray for the one who is pushing against us, we are in the place of the cross, identifying with Jesus in his self-sacrificial, giving, pouring out, forgiving love. Amen? Do you track with me through that? Okay. Let's keep that in mind with the story of Paul. And I'm going to cover some scripture here. Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost complete, this is the purification, right, that he was doing. The Jews from Asia, who knew him from Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Crying, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he has brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, which he did not do. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed, they assumed, that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. All right. I think what's happening here, no one knows for sure, but I think what's happening here is Paul is receiving the, the 40 lashings less one uh, that the synagogal leaders were permitted under the tradition of the Jewish people to give to those that they deemed a heretic. Now, in 2 Corinthians 9, where Paul writes about the various sufferings and trials, the shipwrecks and all of that that he's been on, he says, four times I have faced the 40 less one uh, whippings. You know what I'm talking, you remember that? The 40 less one. Now, why was it 40 less one? Because the Jewish leaders were allowed to whip a person 40 times, but they didn't want to transgress that because 41 would be a sin. And so in case they miscounted, they did 39. It's true. This is true. So Paul, four times, he says, I went into synagogues preaching the gospel, and I was dragged out and whipped 40 less one, given 40 less one lashes. I think that's what's happening again. They're beating Paul this time, they're going to beat him to the point of death. Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who are persecuting you. Can you picture Paul in that place? Bam. 
the stick or the rod or the whip, whatever it was, comes down over and over and over again. And Paul, receiving the lashing for the fifth time, Lord, bless these people. Father, forgive them. Father, bring them into your covenant relationship. Father, let them know Jesus as the Messiah. I think that gives a power to this passage that is missed if we just read over it quickly. Verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. So he asks the crowd, and some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. It's a complete mob. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the bar barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him! So they're walking him up a set of steps, and there's a crowd on either side that are literally ripping his clothes to shred, pulling at him, ripping his hair. Well, he was bald, we think, but pulling at him, you get the idea, pulling his ears, whatever they could reach for. And so the soldiers actually had to lift them up, lift him up and carry him up. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? Then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. If you remember from earlier in Acts when we were there, Tarsus was a, a, a major uh, city. And we're going to find out again later, but Paul had actually received Roman citizenship through birth from being born in Tarsus. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And then there was a great hush. You could have heard a pin drop. He addressed them in the Hebrew language, that's Aramaic, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, raised in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous. Remember, this is Paul's famous a uh, uh, favorite way to describe himself. Zealous for God, just like all of you are. I persecuted this way. That was the nickname, the early nickname for the Christians. I persecuted this way to the death. So I was more zealous than you are. I actually killed them, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So I have witnesses here today who saw me do this. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were, with, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul on the ground looks up and expecting to see God, you know, the, like God the Father in white sitting on his, his throne, much like Ezekiel would have seen him or that sort of thing. He's looking up, expecting to see what Isaiah saw. He hears the voice of God, but instead, who does he see? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, from whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. 
And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. All right, this is a very, very key verse for understanding Paul's life. This next two verses. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me. So what does Ananias say to Saul? Paul. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight. Okay, verse 14. And he said, The God of our fathers, so the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is a continuation of the redemptive story of Yahweh with his people. The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. The God of our fathers has appointed you, Paul, to know what his will is. Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To see the righteous one, so to see Jesus, which he already has, but he will again, to hear a voice from his mouth. So to hear Jesus speak, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, this is the second time Paul sees Jesus, I fell into a trance, and I saw him saying to me, this is Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now notice, the mob, the crowd, has allowed him to speak up until this point. They've been fine with him identifying Jesus as the Messiah, to the extent that they haven't stopped him from talking. What pushes them over to the edge where they can't take it anymore? Not Jesus as the Messiah. The Gentiles. Now watch. That's so interesting. Why do they tolerate Jesus being identified as Messiah? But when it's the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God going to the unclean people, this is the reaction. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices in a, and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Woo! In reaction to Jesus saying, Take the good news to the Gentiles. Verse 23, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, man, picture this. Picture this scene. It's like, Lord of the Flies or something. It's crazy. As they're shouting and throwing off their clothes, flinging dust into the air. The tribe, it's like demonic, like crazy. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging, which is a great way to get information out of people, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, he pulls out his ace, his pocket ace, uh, who was standing by and says, is it lawful for you to flog, to beat a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned, untried? 
when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he had realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Again, I'm going to read this, and I want you to picture all of this happening to Paul while I read the words of Christ. This is where we'll close the, the word this morning. And I'm just going to invite you for a few minutes to reflect on this quietly in your own hearts and allow, allow God to bring application in your own life, your own a situation you may be struggling with, a relationship you might be struggling with, that you would be aligned, that I would be aligned, that we would be a people aligned with Jesus, that we would love like this. Praise team, you can come up and lead us um, in a few minutes. Jesus says... You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. There, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Go ahead and meditate on these words. Let's be quiet before the Lord together. Father, I pray that we, in 2019, in Parker Ford Church, East Coventry, Pottstown area, Southeast Pennsylvania, that we today would take these words as seriously as your servants, Stephen and Paul, the early church and the church fathers did for those 300 centuries, that we would take these words as seriously as they did. We pray that this would become a meditation of our hearts and our minds day in and day out that we would love and forgive and walk like you do. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. We bless you. We pray and sing, steady your word in the name of Jesus, our King and Messiah. Amen.